Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What if I told you that the variability you have to download this podcast, the one you're listening to right now, to work from home, to turn your sprinkler on with your phone, is more connected to a jacket, Governor Arthur Phillip, and a South American moth than it is with engineering. Today, I'm going to walk you through a tale that I explored as I sat in hospital last week. It's a wild one but I promise it's worth it. G'day, welcome to Better Than Yesterday. Thanks for being here. This is a podcast that's here to make your day today better than yesterday. Something that you hear on this show, on every show, guaranteed to do just that by having conversations with people from all over the world, from all walks of life. Some of them are experts in their field. Each episode has got something in it that you just kind of leave with going, oh, and you start thinking about things differently or do things slightly differently. I know I do because that's why I wanted to make the show. And I certainly know that many other people do considering the emails that I get. Send us your email at gmail.com if you need me. Uh, I am Osher Ginsberg. I'm an author. I'm a podcaster. I'm a TV host. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I'm uh, currently a crutch walker, a touch mobility mobilizer, assisted living handhold uh, <laughs> kind of things <laughs> guy. I had to get Heggie to come around and, and bolt some things into the wall so I could have a shower. And um, I'm grateful to be here. Uh, thank you so much for being here. This podcast comes out three times a week, Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays. Mondays and Wednesdays, I'm here with a guest. And Fridays, I'm here with you. As I said, if you need me, send us your email at gmail.com. That's my email address. And you can find me on Instagram, just osher underscore Ginsburg. A quick update. I only just got back from hospital, like just got back. Uh, I was supposed to be there for five days. I ended up being there a fair bit more than that. I'm grateful, so grateful to be back home now. I do have more surgery on the way, as I mentioned, but because I'm no longer in devastating, debilitating pain like I have been for the past 18 months, it's fine that I can't touch my right foot to the floor and I have to walk on crutches for the next three months. That is easy. Being in hospital is weird. It was a little like COVID lockdown because not only could I not leave, but I, I could only touch one one foot to the floor. I couldn't reach anything. For Honestly, for an orthopedic hospital ward, a, a ward that solely houses people who are unable to leave the bed, you can't reach anything from the bed. It was fucking ridiculous. Um, anyway... Now, look, because we'd planned the surgery months and months out between me and Audrey and Rachel and Lauren and my team, we actually recorded a bunch of podcasts to get us over the time we'd be there, which included some pretty intense masked singer shooting and stuff like that. And between that and the Bachelor production, it was going to be tight, 
but we were always going to have enough in the can that would have episodes to release no matter what. But what ended up happening is I ended up being in hospital a fair bit longer than I was supposed to be in hospital. So we missed our window to record a new interview, to record a new one. So for the first time since I started this episode, we are without a guest on a Monday. We have run reruns on a Monday, occasionally over the summer break, uh, during that period when my, my mum was uh, convalescing and, and palliative care. Uh, we ran some reruns, uh, but we've never not had a guest on a Monday. So apologies for that. We kind of run out of pre-recorded ones, which I've never done since 2013. But I didn't want to leave you without a show. Didn't want to do that. So instead, I wanted to... I guess, take you on a journey that I went on while sitting in my hospital room, hooked up to a drip and with a, uh, a small battery-powered vacuum cleaner attached to a dressing on my hip, uh, sucking the air out of the space between the dressing and the wound. I had a lot of tubes coming out of me. I've still got tubes coming out of me. Being stuck in there was pretty ordinary, but amazing because I had incredible health care. But it was also interesting because... I felt like, and I feel like right now, I feel like I'm a tropical holiday compared to the kind of pain that I've been in. Now it's gone. It's kind of like when the, I think I said this before, like when the jackhammers across the street stopped working, I'm like, oh God, I didn't realize. Wow. And now all that pain's gone. I just, I feel like I'm in a hammock reading a Malcolm Gladwell book and accidentally having a nap. So in hospital, I brought my laptop with me. I got a heap of work done, which was great. But I also had the chance to do something that I never really get to do, which is go on a deep diving Wikipedia, Google Scholar journey. I never really get the time to do that. So I'm lying there in bed. I'm having to think about, you know, what I'm doing. And then my head starts bouncing from idea to idea to idea. And then I start Googling and Wikipediaing and reading articles and pulling up archives and downloading PDFs. And I go on this journey that connected a couple of things which I had no idea could have ever connected, but I'm going to say it right now. Essentially, the modern world we live in, I have discovered a way that the modern world that we live in, things that you and I take for granted, the way we do business, the way we work, the way we watch TV, listen to podcasts, the way we connect with our friends and family, that is inherently connected to three things that you would otherwise never expect, three things that are so far removed, you would have no idea that without them, we wouldn't have the world we live in today. And those three things are a jacket, a moth, and Governor Arthur Phillip, the first governor of New South Wales. So in 1561, the army of Queen Elizabeth I, I mean, we now know there was a second and now there's King Charles III, but in 1561, the army of Queen Elizabeth I was defeated uh, by the Irish, the uh, the British were pretty keen on invading other countries. We'll get to a lot more of that later. But the Irish didn't really, they weren't fans of it. And they fought them back. There was, in 1561, there was a battle that the victorious Irish referred to as the Battle of the Red Cassocks. And they called it that on account of the red uniforms that the English were wearing. The English army wore red. As early as 1621, Irish immigrants who had moved to Europe referred to the English as redcoats, the colour of the uniform, pretty much associated with the uh, conquering colonialism that the Brits ended up really, really, really getting amongst. They loved it. So the thing is, the British Empire, as we're all reading about now, it started to get really big, really, really, really big. What had begun in Ireland in the 1100s really kicked in during the mid-1500s. And from there... Man, it was slaves, sugar, exploitation of resources, and as much cultural destruction as you could carry right across Africa, the Caribbean, North America, South America, and India. They were, they were doing it in a massive way. Now, to hold all of this together, they needed a lot of soldiers. They needed a lot of soldiers. And logistically, that is a lot of redcoats. I mean, they're going to make the uniforms. How do you know which one's a British soldier? The red coat. They need thousands, hundreds of thousands of them. So how did they make the coats red? It was a pretty brilliant red. I mean, brilliant as in to the eye. So the red dye, that 
became synonymous with the culture of colonization and all the associated cultural and environmental destruction that came along with it, that red dye was derived from a bug. An insect, a crushed up insect made that color red, the cochineal bug. It was used to create that brilliant red dye of the British Army uniforms. Yeah, brands are particular, very particular about their particular color of red. I mean, the Westpac red is very different to the NAB red and is very different to the Macca's red. They've all got red, but they're, oh, no, 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 that's a little, they're really particular about their colors. They, you know, so the Brits, they were stuck with this. They were stuck with this color, which is, which is excellent news for the people who are in the business of making that red dye, which was not the British. It happened to be some people they did not get along with very well, the Spanish and the Portuguese. Now, thanks to their own efforts in the popular sport of colonialism, uh, the Spanish and the Portuguese had control of a worldwide monopoly of cochineal dye. So every single time the Brits got a new soldier and every time they needed a new red coat, they had to pay some money to the Spanish or the Portuguese. Now, considering that Great Britain and Spain had been at war before and in the late 1700s were about to go to war again, the Brits were pretty keen on not giving any money to a potential enemy as they pumped up their numbers of the very army they were about to go to war with against them. So they were pretty keen to find another source of this precious cochineal bug. See, the thing is, by the late 1700s, the British, they had a very strong global brand, the Red Coat. I mean, if you were having a nice time on your ancestral land, you know, engaging in some cultural practice that you've probably engaged in for thousands of years in a land that your forefathers and your ancestors have stories and songs about, and you saw a boat full of people wearing those red coats rowing towards your beach, I'm really sorry, but the party was over for you forever. It was going to be colonialism and exploitation for you. If you saw those red coats, that was it. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, that's what the colour red on a jacket meant all over the world. If you saw that red coat, that's it. Good night. Everything in your country now belongs to a person far away sitting on a throne with a crown. Now, the last thing the British wanted to do was to rebrand their well-known packaging. I mean, the red coats are coming has quite a ring to it. I mean, that was... That was like a worldwide calling card, wasn't it? So when Captain Arthur Phillip, who was captain on the boat and then became governor when he got here, when Captain Arthur Phillip was on his way down to Australia with the First Fleet in 1788 to become the first governor of New South Wales, he stopped along the way in Brazil. You see, Sir Joseph Banks, the botanist, yes, Banksia Banks, that, that Joseph Banks, apparently he suggested to Captain Phillip, you know what, Arthur, Artie, Botany Bay, I reckon that'd be an excellent place to establish a cochineal industry. Aha, good idea, says Captain Arthur Phillip. So in Brazil, Captain Arthur Phillip stops off and he picks up some cochineal bugs. Here we go, red coats for everyone. But the cochineal bug only likes to eat one thing. This particular bug that makes this particular colour red, which makes that particular jacket, that particular red which says, fuck you, we're coming for your stuff. That bug, the cochineal bug, only likes to eat one thing. And that thing is prickly pear. So, Arthur Phillip not only grabs a bunch of these bugs, he also picks up heaps of prickly pear. So these bugs have got something to eat on the long sea voyage to Sydney. So fast forward. Sydney Cove, raise a flag, fire a gun, drink some rum, Aussie, 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 here we are. So coming ashore with the first fleet, alongside things like 62 cauldrons of coal, 1,500 combs, 8,000 fishing hooks, 87 chickens, four cows, one bull, Governor Arthur Phillip not only brought his greyhounds, but the cochineal bugs and the prickly pear. This is it. New colony, new world, new global headquarters of red coat colouring. It was all going to happen. Screw you, Spain. Screw you, Portugal. The Brits are big boys now. We make our own red coats. Fuck you. Well, pretty quickly, the cochineal bugs, which had survived the sea journey, were absolutely not having the Sydney climate and promptly died. Along with Sir Joseph Banks' dreams of the colony making a financial killing 
by the UK achieving Cote d'Ai independence from Spain and Portugal. But, lucky for us, the prickly pear did not die. Now, they were not the last prickly pears to come to Australia, and as more white people arrived, more variants of the species arrived. Some came to be used as ornamental garden hedges. But have you ever, have you ever brushed up against one? As far as a hedge, the prickly pear is an excellent barbed wire fence. They are fucked. They are, prickly is a kind word. You get some of that shit in your hands, they are nasty. It, we're, we're talking like you're going to the doctors with a magnifying glass to get that stuff out of here. It is n- gnarly. The version of them, they're all over Israel. They call them Sabra there. And I've had some in my hand. Fuck no way. They are bad. Now, there was a fella, a naval doctor by the name of Dr. William Carlyle. Uh, on his way through India, he had actually taken a cutting of prickly pear and he gave it to one of his servants, a lady by the name of Mary Sutton. And he said, keep this watered and protect it so that it has a chance to grow. Now, Mary Sutton kept it in a pot and uh, down in Sydney when they got there. By 1822, Dr. William Carlyle, he was given some land up near Scone. Don't worry, nobody else had the land before him. No, they fucking did. But anyway, he got given some land up near Scone, which is through the Hunter Valley north from Sydney. And again, it was up to Mary, Mary Sutton, to protect the plant, (laughs) apparently from bush rangers as uh, Mary and the plant made their long journey from Sydney up through the Hunter Valley to this land. Now, in Australian folklore, I guess, this is hilarious because bushrangers are always long-bearded. It's like your Ned Kelly or your Captain Moonlight, and it's like your money or your life, and it's like really intense kind of stuff. But it's never costed from Gardening Australia holding you at knife point trying to rob you of your garden cuttings, is it? But apparently, bushrangers were down for nicking plants. So there you go. So Mary made it up to Scone and uh, old Bill Carlisle, he quickly got about using the fast growing plant to fence his 2000 acre property. So why use a star picket? Why use some fence poles? Why do that when you can just grow your own fence? Nice work. So he's pretty happy with it and he was stoked because it was such a strange plant and he would give it to his mates as a gift. Hey, check this out. Look at this. It's fantastic. Now the station manager, the person that ran the joint for him, uh, also grew it about the place with the idea, you know what, this would be really good for cattle to eat when there's drought or something. I'll keep this on standby. So they started putting it in the paddocks. Later on, the prickly pear was brought up to Warwick in Queensland and then uh, it made its way back to Sydney, which it was kind of, you know, sent about as like, oh, this is a great thing for fruit or, you know, a great thing for you as, as a hedge. All right, I've eaten the fruit. The fruit's amazing, but you've got to be super careful how you peel it from the aforementioned fucked little spines that get into your hands. Now, I don't know because it's just an absolutely dastardly, bastardly spiky thing and therefore pruning it or cutting it back or trying to control its overgrowth was a dangerous affair. But let me tell you, Prickly Pear absolutely loved being in Australia. Loved it. In less than 50 years, Prickly Pear had infested 22 million acres of land. What's an acre? What's a quarter acre? A house block is a quarter acre, then an acre is four times a house block. What's 22 million acres? I don't know. But I'll give you an idea like how much space that is. Like one of the biggest exports of our country in the late 1800s was wheat, and the total growth of wheat in Australia was 11.5 million acres. In fact, the total amount of Australia that was growing farmed crops in 1916 was 16 million acres. So like more than the entire amount of farmed land in Australia is overtaken by this, this plant. To give you an idea of how much land is absolutely getting eaten alive by this plant, 22 million acres is larger than the entire island of Tasmania. It's it's fucking huge. And this thing spreads so fast, thanks to uh, native birds who who ate the fruit and then pooped the seeds, and cattle who also liked the fruit and then carried the seeds in their poop. This thing could spread at a rate of 3K a year, like 250 metres a month. This thing could grow this, this impenetrable, just bristly green bastardly spiky wall of nastiness. By 1925, it was spreading at a million acres a year. A million acres is the total size of Sydney and Brisbane. That is every 12 months, it's getting bigger by that. Now, this isn't me saying, oh, the poor farmers, they came out here to turn the land and grow. No, 
The poor farmers were already fucking up the land, often violently taking it from the people who were originally living there, just minding their own business and, you know, being on their ancestral homeland, just being a part of the longest continuous culture on earth. But not only that, think about the, the native flora and fauna that would have been affected. Such an aggressive plant just chewing up the resources, the water, the sun, destroying the habitats of native animals, leaving no space at all for those native plants to grow, for the native animals to feed on. I mean, this is just an environmental cataclysm, absolute carnage, like a cane toad in a green tree frog habitat, nasty, nasty business. So even with the slashing and the burning and the cattle that came before mechanised farming really took off, there was only so much humans were doing at the time to destroy the landscape. But this plant, this plant was literally swallowing everything in its path. It was like the nothing from Neverending Story. It was it was Mordor. It was your loose mate who shows up to a wedding, still up from the night before with pockets full of bags for the bridesmaids and the groomsmen. It's absolute carnage. But at the time, though, in Australia, no one gave a shit about flora and fauna. No one cared. By then, they'd completely forgotten about, you know, being the world capital of red for redcoats. All they wanted to do was to make sure that the land they'd cleared for farming was able to be used for farming so that Australia could have some kind of economy to speak of. We haven't figured out how to dig stuff up yet. Because at the time, our only export was wool and wheat. We hadn't got into the business of digging up coal. Don't worry. We're now pretty much the largest exporter of coal on the planet and did something like, we did 400 million tonnes of the stuff last year. So the fact is like a heap of the climate change that's forever altered our planet already and will continue to alter our planet through the course of yours and mine and our grandchildren's lives. Those carbon atoms were released through burning in power plants overseas, yes, but a huge amount of those carbon atoms now floating around our atmosphere, amplifying the solar radiation and permanently changing the weather patterns, they're 100% Aussie. Dug up, sold and shipped right from our very shores. Dinky die, hey true blue, don't say you're gone. I get ahead of myself. So at the time, with what little export economy we had was absolutely getting hammered by this plant. They called it the green plague. So what are, you, what are we going to do about it? Poisoning wasn't working. Burning it wasn't working. With World War I largely behind the nation, there was a massive focus on rebuilding the economy and, and the need was seen to use federally funded scientific research to help navigate the challenges of, I guess, forcing essentially European crops, stocks and farming practices onto an Australian climate and onto an Australian ecosystem. It was at the time known as the Advisory Council of Science and Industry. And the first research project of the Advisory Council of Science and Industry was a co-investment with the Queensland and the New South Wales governments to tackle the scourge of the prickly pear. Almost immediately, a crack team of uh, 1920s entomologists headed off to Argentina where they'd heard about a moth that loved nothing more than to eat and destroy. Eat and destroy this plant. Now, I assume they're 1920s entomologists. Um, I'm assuming they were plucked out of university and they're gone there via seaplane, flying over a map with a red line extending out behind them as they island hopped their way up through the Pacific, then down along the west coast of South America before reaching their destination, wearing brown fedoras, a whip attached to their belts and a satchel with which to store their relics. But the relic that they were there to find was a moth, a moth called the Cactoblasus cactorum. And this moth loved nothing more than to feast on prickly pear like a bulldog eating custard. The larva of this moth bored through prickly pear like toddler fingers through Play-Doh. And soon enough, after the moth eggs hatched and the, the larvae feasted on the plant, the plant couldn't survive and the plant died. So into their satchels, these intrepid entomologists returned with 3,000 Captoblastis captorum eggs. Half of them went to Chinchilla, to a, a moth breeding station. The other half stayed in Brisbane. The first batch, uh, so 1,500, the first batch they, ha they hatched uh, 527 females. Not bad for bug eggs that had come to Australia via seaplane and a satchel. Those 527 female moths hatched 100,605 eggs. Now, that's not a bad reproductive number. Now, we all know about that from our COVID news briefings. But what I love about that number is this is 1919 or 1920-something. Like, that is people with magnifying glasses and a notepad counting, <laughs> counting eggs. The next number is even better. The, the second generation made... Over two and a half million eggs. It was pretty wild. So first off, before they released it out, they checked that these moths wouldn't eat any other Australian plants or crops. Don't worry, the cane toad was yet to come. 
But at least they stopped here for a second. And in 1926, they opened the door of the cage and they're saying, born free, free as the wind. And they let this moth loose into the outback. When the breeding process was in full swing, the Chinchilla Moth Breeding Station was sending out 14 million Cactoblastis cactorum eggs a day. Now, by this point, there's that much of Australia absolutely choked in prickly pear. The entire country of Italy could have fit into the amount of our country that was chock-a-block, wall-to-wall with the impenetrable prickly green mess. And this moth went to town like it was 3 a.m. in King's Cross back in the late 2000s and the prickly pear was a kebab. They absolutely smashed it. Within seven years, most of the prickly pear, which had pretty much clogged up inland Queensland and inland New South Wales, was now gone. Now, understandably, with so much land opening back up to clearing and farming, the economy responded accordingly. And uh, everyone went, hey, that was, a, that was a good job. You guys did great. Well, what else you could do? And so the chaps at the Council of Science and Industry now added an R into their name, which stood for research. So we're now at CSIR, which in 1949, after World War II, was seen as a way to kind of capitalize on the enormous technological advances of focused research and effort that was seen during the war years. Things like radar, um, what else came out of World War II? Uh, synthetic fibers, superglue, penicillin, instant coffee, uh, rockets, all those things showed that the right amount of focused investment and political will were able to really bring things to market and change the world in very, very meaningful ways. So in 1949, they added an O to their name, the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, the CSIRO, at which point a young Australian boy by the name of John O'Sullivan was already two years old. John was a fun, smart kid. He had a love of sport, and despite being a stellar hockey player, he graduated from Sydney University with a PhD in electrical engineering. Sydney Uni has some pretty epic alumni. It includes uh, seven Australian prime ministers or opposition leaders, 24 high court justices, and one Dolph Lundgren. Yeah, Dolph Lundgren went to Sydney University. He holds a master's degree in chemical engineering from Sydney University. The universal soldier himself, the nemesis of Rocky Balboa, even Drago, actual He-Man, went to Sydney Uni. And Sydney Uni actually plays a huge role in his life because as the 1981 European karate champion, Dolph Lundgren had the skills to take up some bouncer work while he was studying here in Sydney. So he's working at this nightclub in Sydney. Grace Jones is out here touring. She clocks Dolph Lundgren on the door. She goes, ah, not only is he tall, not only is he really hot, he's also really, really smart. And she instantly hires him as her personal bodyguard. They also instantly start rooting. She then convinces him, now her boyfriend, to move to New York with her. And when he's there, she gets him a job in the next James Bond movie that she's been cast in, A View to a Kill. Next stop, Rocky. So thank you, Dolph Lundgren. Thank you, Sydney Uni. Thank you, Grace Jones. Now, that happened just a little bit after John O'Sullivan went to Sydney Uni because by 1974, he'd already graduated and he'd moved to the Netherlands where he started working in radio telescopes at the uh, Foundation for Radio Astronomy at the, uh, well, it's D-W-I-N-G-E-L-O-O Observatory. So while it could be an Australian word, Dwingaloo, it's probably Dwingaloo, if you speak Dutch. Now, I don't know if it was the quality of soccer that was occurring in the Netherlands in 1974 that influenced John, but he started to come up with some very, very creative solutions to problems while looking for the echoes of black holes. Now, I'm not saying that Johan Cruyff's dramatic reimagining of how soccer was played, where there were no longer specialist positions in defence and attack, but almost every single player on the field was a striker, which then led to the Netherlands' dramatic sweep through the ranks of the 1974 World Cup as they left every opposition team bewildered as to what the fuck was going on while they scored a hailstorm of goals until they met West Germany in the final. I'm not saying it did influence John O'Sullivan, but it could have. It could have. Because it was in 1974, while working in the Netherlands, as a fan of Stephen Hawking, John O'Sullivan went looking for the sounds of dying black holes. Around that time, Stephen Hawking, the super famous theoretical physicist, you know, with the wheelchair and the, the, the voice and everything, 
And the astronomer Martin Lees, who was actually a lord, Royal Lord Reese of Ludlow. It's a hard one to say. So Hawking and Reese had this idea. Black holes... They get smaller and smaller, and as they do, they get hotter and hotter, and finally they get so small and they get so hot that they go up with something like a, a nuclear explosion. And Hawking and Reese were suggesting that maybe that nuclear explosion would result in a radio pulse, and if you listened, you might be able to hear it. Now, it's the same kind of electromagnetic pulse that people were terrified of uh, with nuclear bombs, the kind of thing that would go off and, and stop all the electronics in your house and stop a whole country from moving. It's the thing that the crew of the Nebuchadnezzar used to fight off the angry squid machines in the Matrix. But the idea was maybe, just maybe, you could hear these pulses from little many black holes dying all around us, some of them left over from the actual Big Bang. If you listened in the right way. So John, with a radio telescope at his disposal, him and his team started listening out for a distant ancient bang. And they were indeed able to detect these pulses. However, the radio telescopes they were using came back with enormous amounts of signal. All right. Listening is like listening to an orchestra tuning up, but all playing a different note and all at the same time. The entire sound of the universe happening at once. So to solve this problem, John came up with a very, very clever solution and ended up writing a fundamental research paper about ways to separate out complicated frequency signals that were all mashed together by the echoes of space and time. Now, in this paper, they presented a technique for sharpening and improving picture clarity in radio astronomy images. That paper would lead directly to the invention of a technology which would change the world as we know it. In 1983, John O'Sullivan left the Netherlands and he came back to Australia to work at the place, the very place that rid our nation of the green plague. John took a gig as the head of signal processing group Radio Physics CSIRO. Now, already a leader in innovation, the CSIRO had given the world so many gifts. Air regard, which had saved countless lives from insect-borne illnesses. They'd built the telescopes that broadcasted pictures of the moon landing live to the world. And if you've got extended wear contact lenses in your eyeballs right now, you can thank your mates at the CSIRO. So John's working there uh, at the CSIRO is what they call it, by the way. Those who are there, CSIRO, because CSIRO is too many, too many syllables, CSIRO. So John's working at CSIRO. And John and his team, they're, they're just working with humongous amounts of data. Now, this is the 80s, man. Hard drives were cumbersome. They were unreliable. And they'd literally need hundreds of floppy disks to shuttle around the kinds of numbers they were dealing with. So getting data from one workstation to another was getting very, very tricky. And data cabling was even more difficult. They eventually had fiber optic cables, but they were prohibitively expensive. But it was evident to John and the team that as they looked forward and they saw a thing called Moore's Law, which is about how the processing capacity of a computer chip doubles and the manufacturing price of the computer chip halves over a certain amount of time. They were looking at Moore's Law going, you know, portable computing is going to be a big deal in a small amount of time, only a couple of years from now. So being able to get data off this computer and onto that computer without a disk is going to be a game changer. So they had these fiber optic connections. They were probably one of the only places in the world that could send data at that speed at that point in time. But they could see that, oh man, we could send video. Video is amazing. It's easily shareable. Imagine if we didn't have to use a cable. Like you could have, for example, and John uses a great example, you could have a technician working inside an airplane try to fix something in the cockpit, right? And she could bring up the entire schematic manual of the panel that she's working on without a cable running to the computer she's working with. We take this for granted right now, but John and his team decided, they decided the benchmark, 100 megabits a second. Like, if we can do that wirelessly, that's the holy grail, let's go. Now to do this, to get that kind of speed, they would need radio waves. Now radio waves move similarly to other things that we know as waves. Uh, things like water, things like sound. Similarly, not the same, but similarly. So imagine a wave that you can see out in the ocean, all right? Say you're up on a hill and you can see a fair bit way out, maybe even to the horizon. On a lovely day with a gentle offshore breeze, you might see the waves lined up on their way to shore. Sometimes it looks like corduroy in the water. 
And if there's nothing in the way, like a headland or a seawall or anything, those waves will have clear peaks and troughs. The difference between the part that sticks up above the general surface level of the water and the trough that travels ahead of the wave that's just a little bit lower than the surface level. Like if you've ever gone body surfing, you'll feel the wave kind of suck down before it picks up. That's the trough. Now, those peaks and troughs are moving at a particular speed. The speed in electromagnetic waves is called frequency. Those peaks and troughs, how high above the surface level they extend and how low the troughs are below the surface level in electromagnetic radiation, it's called wavelength. So they have frequency and they have a wavelength. Now, along with frequency and wavelengths, there's the energy of the wave. So imagine you and I, we've got a a long skipping rope at Little Lunch. I'm holding one of the skipping rope, you're holding the other end. The skipping rope's long enough, we could have 10 people jumping on it if we wanted, right? And we're moving our arms up and down. We're trying to make a wave travel from one end to the other. I'm trying to make it wave. So if someone's standing to the side can see a wave traveling from my end to your end, we could probably get one wave to travel down pretty easily. And if we move our arms correctly, you and me, so your arm meets the wave that I start, if we moved fast enough, we could probably get three waves to be seen at once. Like it'd be hard, but we could do it. Any quicker than that, and our shoulders would probably fall off because as the wavelength shortens, more energy is needed to push it along. Now, radio waves are just one form of electromagnetic radiation, which is swirling all around us in all, always right now. Very, very high frequency electromagnetic waves. That is, waves with extraordinarily short wavelength. They're called gamma rays. They're, the wavelength's so small, it's smaller than the atom of a nucleus, which is why gamma rays are the bad news radioactive Chernobyl kind, because they're so small, they can penetrate the structure of other molecules and smash them to bits. Now, as the frequency of the spectrum lowers and the wavelength increases, so the distance between the peaks and the troughs gets longer, we come to X-rays, which I've had about 100 in the last year as I'm trying to figure out what the fuck's going on with my hip. As we keep going, it's ultraviolet rays, which is the sunburn stuff. Keep going. It's light rays. So we are seeing our eyeballs have adapted to perceive electromagnetic radiation in the form of, you know, color and light. It's fucking incredible. I love it. Uh, After that, the wavelengths get larger and the frequencies get smaller. Now, from there, it's infrared light, which insects can see. It makes flowers look completely different. So the flower you and I see looks completely different to a bee. Now, I always wondered what my infrared TV remote control looks like to a bee as I flick through the channels. Oh, yeah, when you cuddle someone, if you're cuddling someone you love and you feel their body's warm, that warmth, that's infrared, infrared radiation. It's pretty lovely. Now, as we keep going, we get into microwaves, which can not only cook your dinner, but also broadcast telecommunication pictures over last vast distances that make your phones work. Here, the wavelengths are about as they're about as long as a cricket ball. So now the wavelengths get big enough that you can kind of visualise it in, in our world, right? Pretty soon, as we keep going up to FM radio and the waves that then AM radio uh, happen on, so at the AM radio, the very end of the spectrum, the wavelengths are 100 metres long. So imagine that. Alan Jones was inciting racial hatred and vilifying Lebanese Muslim Australians on radio waves 100 metres long. Big stuff. And every one of those electromagnetic radio waves, like the rest of the spectrum, it moves at the speed of light, 300,000 kilometers a second. So now you know that. It's a bit rambly, but you can see how big a problem John and his team are faced with. Because unless you live way, way, way out in the bush or you're in the middle of the ocean, these frequencies are flying around all of us all the time, always. If you could hear them, they're not sound, but if you could hear them, it would literally sound like every possible audio, auditory frequency all at once, all at the same time. And if you're trying to get one machine to send a signal to another in the middle of all that noise, how do you overcome that? Well, you need an expert in radio telescopes who's the best in the business at figuring out how to filter out the massive background sound of the entire universe to hear the ancient pop of a black hole bursting, that's who you need. You need Dr. John O'Sullivan. By now, John's the deputy chief at uh, the CSIRO Radio Physics. John and the team set about thinking, how do we solve the problem of the echo? Their incredible solution is coming up right after this. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Okay, so Dr. John O'Sullivan and his team, they had this problem with the echoes when they're sending all this data from machine to machine. Echoes are a real, real problem. Now, this is not a scientific explanation. It's a very rudimentary description of something way more complicated. So they're trying to send data from one computer to another computer on a radio frequency, a radio frequency burst full of millions and millions of ones and zeros. Now, they weren't the only team trying to figure out how to do this, but they were all faced with a similar problem as the speed of the data increased. To explain the problem, think of that data, ones and zeros, all right? It's two variables. It's an on and an off. But when you put these on and offs in different arrangements, it means different things. It's code. There's a version of this that you probably already know. While it's not electromagnetic waves, it behaves in similar ways sometimes. It's Morse code. That's a code that you may know in old war movies. That it's that, all right? It travels to your ears on sound waves, so not electromagnetic waves, but the problem is the same. So for the purposes of this demonstration, I'm, I'm going to ask Andy, Andy Ma, my excellent audio engineer. Andy, I'm going to need you to help me out here. I'm going to send a message in Morse code using my trusty melodica. All right, so this is my melodica here. All right, so I blow into it and it makes a sound. Okay, so I'm going to send a message using my melodica using Morse code. So I need a, a short sound and a long sound. So you, there's two sounds in Morse code, short and long. And the way you combine them means different letters. And then the person at the other end goes, oh, they're sending me, hey, it's a hot day today, whatever. So I'm going to send a message in Morse code, which means I'm going to make a short sound and a long sound. Now, if you ever knew anyone who ever owned a Nokia phone, you already know this Morse code. Here it is. So dot, 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 dash, dash, dot, dot, dot. That's Morse code for SMS. Yeah, I just blew your mind, right? That was the noise that an SMS made. It made that. Dots and dashes short and long signals, right? Now, imagine you're trying to decipher that Morse code in the most enormous echoey bathroom in the world with a ceiling 40-something metres above you, really shiny, shiny tiles, really bright room, and the sound bounces back really, really loud. So, Andy, as I play, as I play this again, can you add a, 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 an echo, like a hard echo? It doesn't sound like, an, a, like a reverb, but it's like a delay, I guess you'd call it. And can you make it sound like we're in a room that's about, I don't know, 10, 20 metres big with really sharp walls? Okay, just one echo though, so, so we don't get too confused. So I'm going to say, play at the same speed, but now there's echoes involved. You ready? Right. By the time you're hearing the M, the you're hearing like the echo of a dot, which has travelled up to the ceiling tiles and back down to your ears and, and landed in the middle. So it's no longer an M. It's like, what the fuck is that now? The message is garbled. We can't figure out what's happening. Now, just imagine if the person on the other end starts sending the message at a higher bandwidth, that is, delivering the message faster and faster and faster. Those echoes start to become harder and faster, and then it's just mush. Okay, so I'm going to take a big breath. I'm going to play that a bunch of times pretty quick, and you'll hear what happens. You'll hear what you're trying to decipher. Here we go. Like, what, the, what the fuck is that? Echoes are a massive problem especially inside where electromagnetic waves bounce around off all the surfaces inside of our homes, our offices, our airports, on the bus, wherever we're, you know, trying to work. So using the absolutely brilliant ideas that he conceived of back in the 70s, John and the team 
basically start to experiment with cleaning up this giant stream of code. Because as the bandwidth goes up, especially towards 100 megabits a second, if the bits of data are sent one after another, those bits, that they're only three metres apart. And in the, in the spaces that we live and work in, three metres is a problem. So if they bounce off the wall behind you and come back, you'll get an echo, which will lead to the data getting garbled. So in a stroke of absolute genius, something that is directly related to John O'Sullivan being a huge fan of Professor Stephen Hawking and then figuring out ways to listen for and exactly find the sound of black holes exploding billions of years ago. John and his team figured out this incredibly, very clever way of making an even cleaner space between these bits of data. They figured out to send them at different tones, okay? So instead of hearing this, you're now hearing uh, something. Uh, I'll play a triad so you know what I'm doing. Here we go. You know here. Um... All right. I'll do it again. So they're on different tones. So now with all the echo, Andy, you can understand what's going on. Here we go. So even with all the echo, it's far more understandable. Oh, that's the initial signal. Uh, that's the echo. Ignore that one. Unbelievable, right? So I've just given you a very, very shit explanation of something that is way, 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 way more complicated, which involves the probably the most importantly transformative algorithm ever created in modern humanity. It's an algorithm called the Fast Fourier Transform. So I've, I've left so much out, mostly because I have no idea how it works. But essentially, by cracking that problem, that echo problem, by figuring that out, that is what led the team at the CSIRO Australia's own CSIRO to invent the very thing that you downloaded this podcast on, Wi-Fi. Can you imagine your life without Wi-Fi? This podcast, your smart plugs, my brother's beer fridge, so many things that we use in our lives are because of Wi-Fi. So the next time you're at a mate's house and you ask for their Wi-Fi password and you're typing in, you know, BBGirl69, capital B, capital G, oh, sorry, there, this is what it is. You're typing that into a device no, that Wi-Fi is only possible because of a jacket, a bug, a governor, a weed, uh, violent colonialist armies wanting to have nice red jackets, and a moth. The CSIRO is an absolute national treasure. And Wi-Fi is the very thing that you and I and 325 billion connected devices around this planet used to drive our lives, our economy, our food supply, our healthcare, our defence, our telecommunications, our, yes, even porn. It's something that we as Australians should feel enormously proud of. So if you ever hear of any government ever saying they want to cut CSIRO funding, you can tell them to get fucked over email via Wi-Fi. Crikey. I felt... You know what? I love doing that because I literally feel like I've been talking for five minutes, but I've been speaking for nearly an hour. I know I wasn't a guest joining me this week, but when I was in hospital, I started thinking about how am I able to finish seasons and seasons of Top Boy in a day? And remembering that time that we spoke with John O'Sullivan on Idle Australians last year, and I just went on a tangent of you know ping pong research as far back as I could go. And I, I really enjoyed researching and I really enjoyed reading about it. I really enjoyed it. And I wanted to take you on the journey that I went on because I found it kind of meandering and interesting and kind of fascinating. If any of the stuff that I just talked about you found interesting, for further reading, I would definitely recommend that one particular episode of Idle Australians, uh, the podcast that I did with James last year. Also the CSIROpedia csiropedia.csiro.au is also very, very good. I read a fascinating article from 1919 published by the precursor to the CSIRO all about the prickly pear in Australia by W.B. Alexander. There's also some really cool shit on the National Museum of Australia website. A lovely article by uh, Sarah Villafranco, Prickly Pear, More Drama Than Reality TV. And an extra, extra, extra special thanks to my dear friend who over poker the other night I uh, confirmed with him some of the more interesting technical details as we explain fast fury transforms and, um, and things like that. And so a massive thanks to Ruben Miemann, the surfing scientist, coming to a high school to blow some things up in a science demonstration near you. I couldn't have done this without Rubes, and I'm super, super grateful that I did. 
I hope you enjoyed that. It was a very different kind of show for me. I really enjoyed researching it. I really enjoyed writing it. I literally can't walk anywhere. I use one foot so I'm lying on my back with my feet in the air because one of my feet's a different colour. It's kind of purple, which is no good, which means I haven't got enough blood flow going through my leg. So I've got to be really careful. I'm on blood thinners and all kinds of shit. So I've been doing a lot of reading and a lot of writing, and I really, really enjoyed the the, the learning part and the exploration and the discovery part of it. And I, I really hope that you enjoyed listening to that because I got quite a rush out of it, and I, I hope you enjoyed it. And what I'd really ask you, because it was such a different podcast today, I'd love to know what you thought. I really would. I know a lot of people listen to this show for a long time, and you know, maybe we talked a lot in the past, and we used to go back and forth, and now you think I'm I'm your mate who you talk to every week, so you don't need to reach out to me. But if you if you listen to this, it was such a different show. I'd love to know what you thought of it. DM me on Instagram or email me, send Osher email at gmail.com. I'd love to know what you thought of this, and if is there something you'd like more of, if something you'd like less of. I love doing it. It took more work. You know, in a way, but I think it's also because I was on synthetic opioid painkillers and I was a bit rambly for a while there. <laughs> not now. I'm just on Panadol. Actually, not even now. I, I took Panadol this morning. I'm fine. I'm, I'm on no painkillers at all. It's fucking amazing. I've been on like, I've been on paracetamol like, for, for a year and a half. I'm no painkillers at all. I'm just sitting here like finest frog's hair. Like, I can't even believe it. And this is with like not even my final surgery done. Unbelievable. Fuck, man. Science is incredible. Oh, thanks for listening. I'm going to go upstairs and feed a beautiful homemade pizza to a beautiful son of mine so he and his babysitter can hang out. Thanks for listening. I'd love to know what you thought of the show. Send us your email at gmail.com. Massive thank you to uh, Brie Steele, who did a lot of the research for the John O'Sullivan episode that I used uh, a lot of her research for this show as well. Thank you to Andy Marr, who uh, worked differently hard this week to make this episode sound good. Thank you to Toa Hyder, who made all the music. And thank you to Rachel Barrett, the executive producer of a lot. I'll talk to you on Wednesday. Until then, sleep well and dream a beautiful thing. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.